0: So this evening, I would like to look at the path of compassion of meditation as a path of compassion, and to look at that, I will look a little at the Bodhisattva precepts, because I think it's very important to see that the practice we do here, we did here the questioning, what is this? Actually, it was very much within an environment of compassion, of ethics. And when I lived in Korea, uh, very quickly, I took the Bodhisattva Preset, though I had no idea what I was taking, because at the time, there was no translation available. (laughs) So I did what everybody did, And then, over time, as my Korean improved, then I could start to understand actually what they were about. And then I realized that a lot of the things that were done in the monastery were done because of the Bodhisattva precept. One thing which mystified me for a few times was if I went to the fields with Master Kuzan, the Zen master of the place I was, if he met a cow, he would pat the cow and he would say something in a very soft voice. And I was really curious, what is he doing? You know, What's going on here? And then I realized it was one of the Bodhisattva precepts that whenever you meet a sentient being, you must get close and in a very soft voice. You must wish for it to become awakened. So that's what he was doing, wishing the cow (laughs) to be awakened, possibly in a future life. (laughs) And this precept, I became very interested in these precepts, and then I decided to translate them, and then the venerable Popjong really helped me time to time when I had little problem. I would go to see him about it. And what is interesting about the precept, the Bodhisattva precept? So Bodhisattva means someone who aspires to awakening. Body is awakening. Sadva is being, is person. So basically, it's a precept of whoever aspires to awakening. And in the text, they say that the precepts are like a brilliant lamp. So that ethics, precepts are like a light. We can, in a way, illuminate the way. But nowadays, often the precepts and ethics are very much seen as rule and regulation. They're really kind of like, you know, you talk of ethic or precepts, you know? Now I must, you know, do a certain thing a certain way. But actually, on the contrary, the precepts in the Zen tradition are seen as actually a liberating factor because actually they're based on compassion. So it's not like they're not based on this kind of uh, fixed rule and regulation, but they're based really on kind of like what would be called a situational ethics which kind of asks us to not cause harm and to be compassionate. So these precepts, there are 10 major and for 48 minors. And what is interesting is that they were created by the Chinese. And in about, one would nearly say, 800 years after the Buddha, they kind of started to receive many different texts. And then one of them, I think, the Brahmajala Sutra, which is in the Pali Canon, the beginning of it, is very much about ethics. And they took these kind of few sentences, few paragraphs, and then they kind of, in a way, amplified, developed it so it could be adapted to the Chinese context. And, one, and although the, the text is said, To have been said by the Buddha, it's a later text. But what is interesting is that there is two different aspects. is the fact that both monastic and lay people can take this precept together. So instead of having the monastic one way, the lay people another way, this is for both, for everyone. And so again, it's a very communal thing without hierarchy. And also something which is interesting with this precept is that you can take them yourself. If there is nobody around to give them to you, you can take them yourself. It was really a departure from before. You always receive the precept from somebody else. This one you could just, in a way, decide that you wanted them to be a lamp, to be illuminating your life. And so you would take them yourself. And so in a way, the, the basis for this precept are compassion and altru. I mean, there is, I would say, three main bases, compassion, altruism, and liberation. And so they're really kind of based on that. At the same time, what I think is important to see when you have any sacred text is that actually part of it is relatively dogmatic. You have a kind of a few of them are really dogmatic and you can really see it's about competition with other schools and different things. So I won't go into those. Then you have some who are really weird and they're really totally Chinese and totally over the top. I will also not go into these. But I will kind of look at the one which really, I would say, can speak to our situation today. Because when I read this precept, What it kind of makes me think is, in a way, what kind of text would we today make if we wanted to do such a text of Bodhisattva precept for the 21st century? How would they be like? And one of the reasons I uh, translated the precept was because finally one day I understood why in the monastery and in the nunnery there was a ritual of forgiveness, which was very strange for us Westerners. And the ritual of forgiveness, the way it works in Korea, in the monastery, not outside in society, but just in the Buddhist monastery and nunnery, if anybody make a mistake, the only thing you have to do is to go to somebody a little higher up in the hierarchy, you bow three times, and you say, I made a mistake, and this is it. However bad what you've done, this is it. And to me what was interesting is that they really did it that way, and it was really, really forgiven. This was it. When I think in the West, often we forgive, but we don't forget. And generally we can say, "Yeah, yes, I forgive you, but then we kind of serve it a little later in a different way. But there I could see, I was surprised. And, and the Westerner had a very difficult time doing the ritual. Because, f- for example, once Master Cousin said to some uh, young Americans, you know, I saw you the other day. You were not supposed to be there. You were supposed to be in the monastery meditating, not being out and doing yourself in the village. And, I mean, a Korean monk or nun would have said, oh, I made a mistake about three times, and that was it. But the Western uh, American monk said, ah, but yes, and this and that. And, the, and Master Kuzan was like, oh, la, la, <laughs> you know. <laughs> this is getting a little, kind of. And, and it was kind of, it's interesting to see a kind of such a different way to deal with this kind of if you make a mistake and what you do with it and once it happened with Master Cousin I was traveling with him in America and due to somebody else we had a little kind of a slightly heated discussion and then I really felt bad I thought, ooh, I kind of discussed (laughs) argumented with my teacher ooh, that's not a good idea So I put my robe on and I went to him and I bowed three times and I said, I made a mistake. And then he said, me too. (laughs) And then it was forgiven and forgotten forever. And this this ritual comes from one of the precepts. And the precepts say, refrain from being angry and treat well someone who asks. For forgiveness. And then generally you have the title and then you have explanation. And it says the duty of the bodhisattva is to be kind and not quarrelsome and compassionate. So you must not abuse any living, any living creatures, nor should you vent your anger on an inanimate object. (laughs) Does that sound familiar? Has anybody ever kicked the car? Kicked a computer? And this is 400 China. Human beings don't change very much. You can imagine a Chinese kicking a cart. And then it says, if someone comes and begs for forgiveness, If your anger is unappeased, this is a serious offense. So that's where this kind of ritual of forgiveness came from. Then the first major precept, which is a very kind of common one to many religions, is refrain from taking life. Basically, do not cause harm. But then in the explanation, it says, do not perform the act Do not cause someone else to do it. Do not do it in a roundabout way. Do not create the causes and conditions for it to happen. Do not develop a means to do it. So this is not just about not doing something. But it's really looking at the intention and looking at the conditions. Because sometimes we don't do it ourselves. But I think often when we, we kind of... Uh, gossip, I think we do it in a roundabout way because suffering very much often in a roundabout way. We go to say something to somebody, we'll say it to somebody, and then it kind of has a ripple effect and can cause a lot of trouble. So I think in a way looking at this different aspect because it says the duty of a bodhisattva is to be compassionate toward others and lead them to liberation. Then you have another one which is again common, refrain from telling lies. And again he goes, do not perform the act, do not cause someone else to do it, do not do it in a roundabout way, etc., etc. And on top, do not convey the impression that you saw something you did not see or you did not see something that you saw through physical gestures or mental intention. This gets subtle. This really gets subtle. And to me, that's what is interesting. Because it's kind of kind of trying to see, what do we do? You know? We might not lie outright, but sometimes we can do it by, we can do it in so many different ways. So, you know, it's kind of like, not the precepts are, are not there to judge ourselves. But really, to use awareness in a creative way, looking at what goes on, what do I do, how do I do it. Then you have another one, which is very, I think, very challenging. And it says, refrain from praising yourself and slandering others. Because often that's what we do. We kind of say, look at me, look at me, oh, I am fantastic. And those ones, you know, I am much better than that. You know, we often do this, kind of like put someone down so we can raise ourselves up. And then it says, it's a duty of the Bodhisattva to take on oneself the slander directed toward others. And we, we don't accept any slander directed to ourselves anyway all the more I'm not going to take the one of somebody else. But I have a friend, that's what he does. He works in a, with a drug rehabilitation unit and often sometimes things get a little heated and then he gets in the, in the, in the place and then they're all shouting, saying, you did this and I did that and uh. And then generally straight away he'll say, I did it, I did it. <laughs> And then everything goes down. (laughs) Then he kind of starts to calm the situation, but generally he's not done it whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But he's very happy to take kind of, you know, the slender so that he kind of helps the situation. It's also said transfer whatever is unpleasant to oneself. And that also, we're not very keen on that. We don't like it, what is unpleasant. I mean, something which is unpleasant for somebody else, I don't want it, you know. It's enough what I've got. And so personally, I think the precept often challenges a little our comfort zone, a little the static score. And then the third thing he asks us to do is give whatever is good to others. I mean, what is good? We want to keep it for ourselves. We can share it just for a minute, but not long, not long. I want it back. I don't want to give it. It's interesting, our reluctance to share what is good, kind of give it to others. Another one, refrain from reviling others in order to spare yourself. Often that's what we do. And it says, do not be miserly. Give whatever is requested, even a few words of advice. And I think we often do this nowadays when we see beggars. Often we say, oh, I'm not going to give them anything because, you know, they're going to drink or they're going to take drugs or they should work or whatever. We give all kinds of reasons for not giving anything. And recently I read this wonderful book. You might have seen the film by now and it's called The Soloist. And it's in uh, San Francisco, and you have this journalist who is always looking for a good story. And he keeps seeing this guy, this African American guy, playing the cello, playing kind of violin in the middle of a big junction. And the guy looks weird, but the music is amazing. And so he sees him again and again, and he thinks, but what is this guy? You know, first he's kind of, this is weird. And then he really gets involved. He gets to know him. And the, the fellow has a, a schizophrenia. He's also a great artist who has, uh, because he has schi- schizophrenia. He has a little trouble and he's homeless. And what is interesting over the book is to see how the journalists keep trying to help the person. He's yeah, trying to keep the, help the soloist, to help that violinist, cellist. And you can see that the journalist's great ambition is that the fellow is cured from his schizophrenia. So then he can become the greatest artist he can be. But the fellow, the soloist, wants to be who he is, schizophrenia and all. And so you have this dance between the two of the journalist helping and the other solo is kind of thinking, this is nice, he's helping me. I want this, you know, I want more of it. And then they get into all kinds of things happening. And... But in the end, because of this giving, both of them change. But change not in the way they might have expected. And the journalist really is changed by his actually learning to be with this man. And the man also is helped definitely by getting to know the journalist. And I thought that was very interesting in terms of this kind of how we give without this miserliness and how we change by that giving. Then there is another one. Care well for those who are sick. Care and provide for the sick as if they were the Buddha himself. And I think this is very important to see that when someone is ill, two things are happening. One thing is that it's painful. Illness is painful. But the second thing which happens is that illness is isolating. If I am ill, only I can experience this illness. That it be a stomachache or headache or backache, whatever, just I can feel it. And actually it's very isolating. And this is actually this refer to something in the Pali Canon that at one point, the Buddha noticed a monk was really in a bad shape. He had dysentery, he was really, really in a bad shape, and no other monks was helping him. And so the Buddha said, but why are not you helping him? And they said, well, he's not doing anything for us. Why should we do something for him? And then the Buddha, with his attendant, cleaned the fellow and helped him out and everything. And then he said to the monk, you are a family. You have to care for each other. And so you have to care for each other like if it was me. Like if it was the Buddha himself. And so in a way, to see when we're ill, to also see us as a Buddha being here When someone else is ill, to see that person as a Buddha being ill. Then you have another one, which is save the lives of living creatures and let loose those who are about to be killed. And this precept had a huge social-cultural impact in China and even an economic impact. And so what happens I mean up to, for the last eight hundred years, Buddhists go to the market because in China they sell a lot of live animals. So the Buddhists buy the live birds and the live fish and then they release them. Then the guy who sells them catch them again. <laughs> then he sells them to the Buddhist again. And I mean, I feel the, the birds and fish might get a little traumatized after a while. But that's what happened. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. And also in China, toward in the 1800s, you could still have temples, which would actually be like zoo, because people would give the animals to the temple. So you had a little compound for the old cows and things, and then for the old fish and things, and it was kind of a whole menagerie around the temple. Nowadays you don't have this. It was all destroyed during the Cultural Revolution. And then the last one I wanted to share with you. Refrain from getting angry. Do not strike others. Do not take revenge. Do not repay anger with anger or blow by blow, do not beat, or scold servant, because then you would abandon the compassionate mind. So nowadays, we don't have servant, but nowadays, we have the service industry. And how are you on the phone when you phone the computer (laughs) helpline, or the internet helpline. You wait for 10 minutes, they repeat to you the same thing they said last time, which did not work. And are you compassionate and calm and kind? Or do you start to shout? I think to me this is really what this present nowadays is about. What do we do in the queue in the supermarket? What do we do in the post office? What do we do in the train? Last time in February when I came, I had one of these British Rail experience. I got on the train and then it stopped in the middle of nowhere and it went over a branch. So we limped to the next station, then we got out. We waited for another train who was diverted so we all went into the train, which had doubled. so everybody was standing, you know, and there was kind of like it was filled with people and we had to stand for an hour to hour. And it was fascinating as an experience because I was standing and generally it's not so good for my back to stand, but I was standing and I could see my mind thinking, if only I had run to the front, Maybe there is more space there. Now I am stuck. But then I would just go into meditation, creative awareness. And it was so fine to stand there with everybody else who was standing. We were all in the same boat. And I could really see the power of compassion. That if I had run to the front of the train, that would have been selfish. And maybe I would have got a spot, but everybody else would not have had a spot. So they would have still been suffering, even if I was not. And I felt really this warm glow that we were all in it together, <laughs> suffering. <laughs> and I was kind of glad I did not jump and try to get a see. It was very interesting to, to see that when I was in that frame, I really felt a different way. And I could see when I went into, if only I had done that, it went into this kind of kind of narrow, kind of more tense feeling. It was very interesting going in, out of that, playing with that. So what is interesting about this Bodhisattva present in Korea, in the monastery, in the nunnery and for the lay people, is that actually you take, it, you take them repeatedly, you don't just take them once, and then you must, you know, keep them at all time and never fail. But actually, the monks and the nuns take it, take them once a month, and the lay people take them once a year. And so, what the way it's seen is that as an aspiration. So you actually aspire to try to keep the precepts, knowing that a lot of the time you won't be able to all the time. But you aspire to do it. And then you fail. And then you hear about them again. And then you renew your aspiration. And then you try it. And so and to me this is a very alive ethics that is not set. But that is an intention. That is something we we aim towards but is not like a kind of a fixing us, is not like a prison. To judge ourselves, but actually to give us energy to be compassionate, to see others, and to try to live in the world in a different way. And now I'd like to say a few words about compassion. And personally, I would say that meditation is really about dissolving the obstacle to compassion. So that Often there is this self-centeredness, this kind of you know, kind of closing element to our experience. And the meditation helps us to dissolve that. Because we grasp less, we fix less, and we start to have this more wide-open awareness, not just of ourselves, but of everybody else and of the world. Then our natural ability to be compassionate can come out can be expressed, can be manifest. And so I would say compassion is an innate response to suffering. So in a way it's a feeling, but it's not just a feeling. It's also a recognition of equality in life and in suffering, that it's painful, that it is isolating. And also I think compassion is being available for the suffering of others. So that, in a way, we are available to that. And we open ourselves to that. Because it's not always easy to be compassionate. Because the suffering is painful. And to be with somebody we suffer is not always easy. But I think that's where the meditation can really help us. To give us stability and openness. So that we can be with the suffering without being overpowered by it. And I will also see compassion as a practice. So that it it helps us, like the journalist opening to the soloist. It makes you think of somebody else. It makes you go beyond your self-centeredness. You kind of go out to the other. And in responding to other, you open your heart. And actually you feel wider. You feel this kind of more openness, more liveliness. And the Buddha used to say that the compassion was an antidote to cruelty. And I think when we are cruel, often what we do is that we abstract the person. We go into proliferation, exaggeration about the person, so we make them not in, more than an image, an idea. And then we can be very nasty. But if we kind of, I think if we are in the present with the person and we really see their humanity and the equality in life, then I think we cannot be cruel because we see that they are the same as us. They suffer, they're happy just like us. There is no difference. We are not special, we are not separate at that level. And so, in a way, I would say that wisdom and compassion is a path of meditation. And so I would say, wisdom and compassion and meditation, there is this kind of like movement of cultivation and effect. You cultivate meditation, you have more compassion, you have more compassion, you know, it's easier also to do meditation and that the two really feeds each other. But also the meditation helps us to be wiser. And then... We can have a wiser compassion, because I think one one thing which is important is this listening, and that's why I put the emphasis on listening. To me, listening is one of the key of wisdom in compassion. That we have, the, there is suffering, we feel it, we want to respond to it. But then, what is a wise way to respond? And to respond wisely, we need to listen what does a person really need what does a person really want and like with the story and the journalist he wanted the soloist to be cured but the soloist what he wanted was violins he wanted violins many violins you know every time he brought a new violin it was so happy to have a new violin <laughs> and that's what made him happy to be able to play So he wanted violin and he wanted note sheets and he wanted things like that. He did not want to have drugs for schizophrenia. He wanted to play. And when he played, he really felt different. He really felt happy. And so in a way, I feel meditation can help us to really listen. Can I help? Do I have what is needed Because sometimes we can't. Sometimes somebody might want something from us we don't have, or we can't give, or we are we don't have that strength. Sometimes I think we have to see that compassion, it's a spectrum. Sometimes we can be heroically compassionate for a short while, but we cannot last forever. Then we might have sometimes to be compassionate just for ourselves because we are ill ourselves, and sometimes we are in the middle. And so we have to be careful with what I would call this kind of more romantic, heroic compassion, and more seeing, "How can I be compassionate Not here and now, with myself, my family, my neighbors, my village? And then we can just, I think it's in concentric circle. What is it I can do, which is within my possibility? Uh, when I was uh, doing, once I was doing this research on women and Buddhism, and one of the things which interested me was this thing about meditation and compassion. And also one, uh, kind of one of the uh, slight uh, discussion there is, should you have compassion before awakening or compassion after awakening? So I am in Korea, I am doing my interviews and I go to see this nun with an elder nun and she's a top one of the top, top nuns, you know, in Korea. And I I ask her, what do you think? How about compassion? And she says, Compassion, forget it. <laughs> Until you are awakened, no point. What you want is a real big magnificent awakened compassion. Until then, It's not worth it. That's one point of view. (laughs) Which I might not share, but that was one point of view. And then I went to see another nun I had heard about, because just by herself, she started this old old women's home for nuns without uh, disciples, who were getting old and ill, and for women without family. And so she cre- I went to see the place, and she created this wonderful place, very homely, and they got uh, several uh, awards because it was such a caring, nice place as a retirement home. And so I said to, you, to her, how come you do this? She said, you know, I became a nun because I wanted to awaken. So, you know, I did the studies, and I went to do meditation, and my aim was to awaken and then to help everybody. But then, as I was meditating, I thought, if I wait until I am awakened, people are going to have to wait for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't it be better to practice now compassion and awakening together so people don't have to wait? And that's why she started to do what she was doing. And so I think it's for us to see Do we feel it's more important to practice first and then to be compassionate? Or do we want to practice and be compassionate at the same time? I think, again, it depends on our conditions. So that's what I wanted to say. And then there was a question. I had a little note. And someone was asking me about fear. And I thought maybe other people might also be interested in fear. So the, the person wanted me to say a few things on fear. And I think fear is interesting because I think meditation can help us with fear. For example, the questioning, I think, can be very useful with fear because it can help us to ask, I am afraid now, is there any danger? Because I mean, if we're afraid, it's because there must be a reason. I mean when I was in Korea I was afraid of the dark but from a very young age I was afraid of the dark and then once we had to do a all-night sit so you you'd sat in meditation all day and all night as well and I was fine with the meditation all night what was frightening me is that you know that I would have to go to outside to the bathroom in the middle of the night and I would die of a heart attack you know So I go to Master Kuzan, he said, go back to the question. Go back to the question. What is this? What is this? Okay. So then I would go out at 2 o'clock in the morning to the bathroom and I would kind of start to be afraid. There is a guy out there with a knife, he's going to get me. And I would say, what is this? What is this? What is it? And I thought he was like a magical protector against the bad guys out there. Until I realized that it did not work that way. It was actually the gift of the present. That whenever I asked, what is this? What is this? I would come back to being at two o'clock in the the morning, in a monastery, in the middle of nowhere, in the mountain. Who would know about me to come and get me? (laughs) So... So after that, I stopped to be afraid. But that's what I thought was interesting that with the question, I could feel there is nobody there. And so, in a way, to see the questioning can help us to see I am afraid. What is happening? Is something dangerous happening or not? And kind of, you know, reality check what is really going on now? Not in my proliferation. But what is really going on now? Then I think often fear, if you look, when you're afraid, look. Generally, you're afraid, especially nowadays here, which it's relatively safe. Generally, you're afraid in the future. You're afraid, what if this happens? And so it's kind of, I think it's very important if you feel afraid to look. Am I afraid now because something is going on now? Or am I afraid because I am frightening myself by thinking about something in the future, which might happen, but might not. Once I saw this wonderful film. It had the best line ever. It was something weird called Dinotopia. It was about uh, dinosaurs and humans and things. At one point, you had these young men and women learning to be really cadets, you know, and kind of they were going to help everybody to save and doing things, you know, like a bit like Harry Potter type, kind of flying and things. So, they, you know, they had to, to be courageous. They had to, to beat their fear. So they, we see them doing various difficult things. And one guy is always like... Phew. You know, he's kind of always, you know, you know he's a hero and later he'll make it. But right now he's not making it, you know. So he kind of kept having trouble and he kept, you know, just passing, you know. And finally comes the ultimate test, that he has to jump over a huge chasm. So there is this huge drop, thousand meter drop, and he has to jump. And so you have the 14 other cadets, men and women, and they all jump, 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 and then come him. And he's there, and he's there, and his teacher says, fear is in the future, jump now. (laughs) And he does not jump, but never mind. (laughs) But I thought the line was so good that when you see yourself in the future, come back to now. What is going on now? And what is it that can help me to feel safer? Because I think often we frighten ourselves because of grasping and because of exaggeration. So I think if if we feel afraid, we need to check. Am I exaggerating? Am I going into always, never, and kind of really maybe maybe making something really big, really huge, which then we feel totally paralyzed. Because I think this is one thing we fear. It can make you paralyzed. Uh, A few years back, I was teaching in South Africa, and at the end of it, we had a sharing like we will have tomorrow, and when we're talking a little how meditation could help in the situation in South Africa where fear is really, really strong there. You can really feel it a lot of the time. And there was, suddenly there was this young lady, very shy kind of a young lady, and said, you know, meditation has really helped me with the fear. Before, I could not get, I live in Johannesburg, which is really, really quite one of the big places to be afraid And she said, you know, I couldn't go outside of my house for days, for months, because I was so afraid to go out, something would happen. I would get contact, I would get kind of killed, I would kind of, you know, something would happen. And then she she started to do meditation and she started to do the breath meditation, which really kind of brought down the anxiety. And then what she did, her method, was that whenever she needed to go somewhere, she would meditate on the breath for ten minutes. And then she felt, okay, like there was no exaggeration, I am going out. And then she would take her car, do her thing and come back, and nothing happened. And she was she had been doing this for three years and she was alive. And that allowed her actually to liberate herself from her fear. Just to be aware of the breath. Just to come back to the present. Because I think another thing we fear, often it comes sometimes for some people with anxiety. And I would say it's kind of nearly biological anxiety. Some people are more anxious physiologically. Some people have headaches. Some people are more anxious. And then they might be anxious for different reasons. And so then because they feel the fear response, then they think there is somebody out there to go coming to get them or something. And then it kind of gets really bad. And I think what is important there is try to put oneself in conditions which are less likely to rise, make rise anxiety, but also to do the meditation on the breath. Recently I had a wonderful experience with a friend of mine with um, quite as a, quite a, a phobia due to something in, in his childhood, phobia with crowds, phobia with people. And so he was going to come to a retreat. I was leading, and then he canceled because he thought, you know, there are going to be too many people. I'm going to be anxious. I can't do this, you know. And yet to leave his place, yet to take the train and... And then he heard there was not going to be so many people. There was kind of less than 20. It was going to be a small, and it was going to be a a nice place. So then he booked again. And then he came. And then he did the retreat. And at the end, he came to me and said, The I, the self, is not fixed. (laughs) I have not been anxious for five days. So, I am, I am not my phobia. But what was, he was, what was important is that he was in good conditions, which were safe. The people were kind of not so many. And, and for five days, he did not feel like his phobic self. And so he felt another self. And he was so happy. It was very fun to watch him <laughs> to announcing to me the eye is not fixed. I thought that was wonderful. So, that was just a few suggestions about fear. So, are there any questions or comments? Yes? Um, Just one of the precepts, um, which maybe I didn't understand completely, but I've read it before about not lying, and I'm thinking in situations where you know well this is this is i think you know I think not lying is not does not necessarily mean that you don't tell uh, often we associate it with truth personally it's kind of like basically saying don't tell lies and at the same time if nobody asks you something don't necessarily tell it because you know it. So I think it's kind of like looking at how do we use words. You know, I mean, sometimes if somebody asks me something, recently I had this, somebody was kind of starting to say things which I thought were not skillful about somebody else. And then I said, no comment. I don't want to go there. (laughs) I don't want to make any comment about this. That's often if uh, sometimes that's what I do. Either, I mean, if they ask me, I will say no comment. I don't want to talk about this because I, I don't want my word to be used in whatever way. But also I just, some, often I remain silent. I might know something, but then I think this is not a good idea to, to ask this or to mention this. And then if the person asks me directly, then I will try to say it in a way which is the most careful I can so that to kind of be very careful. I think to me very much the precept is about communication. How do I communicate? I mean, the not telling of lies is more looking at the intention. Do, do I want to kind of uh, uh, take advantage of somebody by lying? I mean, that's kind of like the basic message. But I think, in a more modern context, it's kind of really looking at uh, how do we speak? What are the words we use? What is the tone of voice we use? How do we say what we say? Do we need to say it? Often I think, you know, that's what being in silence, it's interesting, because you realize a lot of things you want to say, you might not need to say. So it's kind of really, kind of in a way, questioning, not that we don't communicate, but questioning how we communicate. And I totally agree. To not lie doesn't mean we must tell the truth and hold the truth all the time. I think one has to be kind of a little kind of wise. And again, one has to use wisdom and compassion with the precept as well. Yes? I was just going to say, i still got a block about everything that I try and do to improve It's like there's a block too, which comes from this feeling of it being contrived. It's like, actually, it's not just meditation, I thought it was just that, but I realised it's about everything. So whether I do yoga or the precepts or meditation or eat healthy food or whatever, I think I'm doing something and that doesn't feel spontaneous. So it feels like there's a block there, and then I get really tight and obsessed around that. And how do I work with that? I mean, obviously, I just watch that. I was talking to um, Stephen, and he was saying that you do something false, but it leads to something real. And you can get quite philosophical about it, but it's like what you do does make a difference, but sometimes you don't believe it. What you're doing is... is Sure, sure. No, no, I think, you see, sometimes it's like this, the feeling of it being contrived, Is a little like a feeling of fear that sometimes we have feelings which are kind of strange. And so we kind of, we're going to put different names to them. And very likely the way you feel, the name you put to is contrived. And so for whatever reason, that often, you don't feel it all the time, but often you will feel like that. And so the thing is, in a, a, a way, not to identify with the feeling of this is contrived. Because then you feel, you see, you have all these association, contrived, false, not true, I want to be true, I must be authentic. I mean, authentic is a very tricky word, you know. Authentic to what? And then you kind of have different criteria for authenticity and not everybody might have the same. So I would kind of uh, go along the same thing as Stephen. In a way, be aware of the feeling of, It feels contrived, and it's kind of like a funny feeling, a feeling which is not very pleasant. And at the same time, personally, I would recommend not to to grasp at it, not to identify, to just say, okay, I I feel this feeling of it's contrived, somebody else will feel a feeling of fear, somebody else will feel embarrassed, somebody else will feel self-conscious, and that's what will be unpleasant. At times, we will have unpleasant feeling. But I think if we relatively know that this seems to help in some way, even though it might feel contrived, then I would go along with it. But if you do something which feels contrived and it really, really doesn't feel good, then I would not do it. So I would more look, is it helpful in the end, even if it feels contrived? That to me would be the criteria and not the fact that it feels contrived. Because we can have all sorts of feeling, And they come, mm-hmm. and they go, and then the problem is more the meaning we give to the feeling. And then that will lead to a lot of elaboration and take us away from what is really going on now. And then we might just go back to the breath. And that really might help us to really be more calm, more open in the moment instead of being kind of caught in the, in the speculation. No, of course decision we have to make decisions. Sometimes we have to make decisions just a little ahead, sometimes we have to make decision a little further. But I think we have to be careful of making decision on a really far away forecast. And also I think we have to be careful of making when trying to make decision, of not trying to make it like if I make the decision it will go into change it's forever after. You see, when you make a decision, I would generally not make it more than two years. Uh, hence. I mean, of course, if you have to plan your retirement, you have to make it a little longer. <laughs> Nowadays, they're all telling you, you know, to plan your retirement. So, yeah, I mean, then you have it's kind of different. But I think it depends what you what kind of decision it is. But you make a decision either for short or longer, but be careful what you put on it. Because you see, the more it is forever, and the more you will be paralyzed. Because if you make the wrong decision, it's a wrong decision forever. And that thing, this is very frightening, you know. Well, actually, I don't think we make decisions forever. I think we make a decision which generally pans out for a, a few years. And often something else happens. And you can never predict what will happen. I mean, of course, you can make a course of your life and some people do this. I'll be kind of this and I'll be that and I'll do this and I'll do that. And that seems to work for some people. But I think I, in my life, I, I have not planned very far ahead. And I generally made decisions very fast and then just kind of see what happened next. But I think it depends on one's life. And also it depends, is it a decision which just affects me or is it a decision which is going to affect my family, my neighbors, you know, if you decide to. I was reading a book where there was this young kid, very clever young children, like 11, 10 years old, kind of loving scientific stuff. And they kept bombing their houses of their parents. So and kind of you know then it kind of starting to kind of, you know, become a little dangerous for the neighbour too. So, you know, so it's kind of like seeing, you know, my decision is it going to affect how many people? So I I think decision is so is, is so complex. But I think yes, of course we have to be careful with this idea of the moment, of being present. The present is not a thing. The present is a flow. So in the present, you have a little of the past, a little of the present, a little of the future, and it moves. So we, we, have to, we learn from the past, we try to live in the flowing present, and then we try to move to the future, we become the present, and off it goes. And so I think it's kind of like, when we, make de- when we have to make decision, is trying not to frighten ourselves with it. And then try to see what seems to make the most sense at the moment. And at the same time, it's a challenge because you don't know what's going to happen. You can hope. But I think when you make a decision, what we have to know is that you're going to gain something and you're going to lose something. And so you have to accept the gain and you have to accept the loss. That I think is what is very important. Not to just look at the loss and not just to look at the gain. To look at both together then generally can help you also. But this is a big subject. Okay. So, yes? About um, uh, the precepts and killing animals, for example, how is it held uh, with the, uh, eating meat? but in the precept, I know in original Buddhism, it's, it's quite a disgusted issue. So. Uh, yeah, the, you see, the, the, the Buddha, uh, at the time of the Buddha, the monks and the nuns, because they were begging, because he wanted them to have this symbiosis with the lay people, they could eat meat, but only if the meat they were eating and not be killed specially for them. So if somebody said, wait a minute, I'll go and get you some food, and they heard the, 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 the chicken squawking, and then, <laughs> then they would refuse the food. But if the chicken had been killed for the whole family previously, and then they just shared in that, then they could accept it. But then, when uh, monasticism came to China, it was strange, because it was a very Confucianist society. And they thought begging was weird anyway. So over time, begging disappeared. And then the monk became more self-reliant, which also helped the Zen monk to survive the various problems with the history and dynasty and things like that in their mountain. So then, because they were cultivating their own thing, then they did not have to eat meat. And then the Chinese monks and nuns became hardened vegetarian. And the precept, the bodhisattva precept, are totally, totally vegetarian. And they, and they say you, so, so there you really, you're not supposed to eat meat and you're not supposed to sell meat. And the same in Korea. So the monks and the nuns are vegetarian. And so I think, you know, in a way, in terms of being vegetarian as a Buddhist or a meditator, again, the Tibetan Buddhists generally eat meat because in Tibet there was not many vegetables and there was different conditions. And then generally the Mayan, uh, Chinese and Korean, the monks and nuns are vegetarian. But the lay people are not vegetarian. But they are vegeta- they're supposed to be vegetarian on certain special days. Like Dharma days. There is, I think, if I'm not mistaken, six or three or six Dharma days in the month where the lay people were supposed to be vegetarian. But they did not have to be all the time. So maybe considering that maybe people have, some people have to eat meat. So I think this kind of like, kind of there is a debate about that one. And I think this is more for each of us to see, can one be vegetarian or not? I mean, I was vegetarian for uh, more than thirty years, and then I got very ill, and I got very thin. And then one day Stephen said, "You must eat some chicken." <laughs> so now I'm a lapsed vegetarian, with lots of vegetables, and very little meat. So that's why I think it's kind of one has to see, kind of you know. What, I think it's going me back more to the principle: what is the least harm that I can do. That's what I would say. I mean, I mean it's the same if you have a, a, a Buddhist center. That's what happened in a Buddhist center. They had two or three cockroaches and then first they tried to deal with it in the Buddhist way to live with them. Then it started to be tw- 10 and 20 and then tried to get them in a kind of catch them in a human way and then they got 100 and then they had to called rent a kill. (laughs) (laughs) And then instead of having two or three, you had hundred kills. So I think, again, you need to have a little wisdom there. But that's not an easy one. That's not an easy one. Yeah. On the subject of killing, I wonder, what's Buddha's view on Diffinantia? um, uh, it's. I think they don't have a view about it. No, 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 but I'm just thinking, you know, uh, that uh, society change. Mm-hmm. Everything change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe one day the precept will change. No, no, that's what I mean. You see, like... Okay. In a way, at the time of the Buddha, you had a certain set of precepts. Yeah. Then the Chinese had a different set of precepts. Yeah. I mean, I think nowadays our precepts would be very ecological and then very social and cultural and very likely you would you would have lots of things in it that they did not think of including because there is nothing said about euthanasia no. because I don't think it was kind of like the subject they want that was really considered in those times. So I think, in a way, what one needs now, mm-hmm. uh, and that's why I talk about this precept, but my idea is more that it inspires people to nearly create, in a way, their own precepts. Mm-hmm. And then I think that would be one of the things. And different Buddhists have different ideas about that one. And personally, I, uh, I would say no comment. I think it's kind of, you know, <laughs> each to his own you know uh, that each person has to see toward the ends on one's life what do i want to do with my life i think each person has that power to and i don't think that necessarily society should impose on them what they want to do with their life but that's a big subject and we have to stop now because there need to be some walking <laughs> thank you